You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Monday, July 20, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, Jack Farley with the day's stories. Thanks, Ash. The euro inched higher to the dollar as EU leaders move towards a stimulus deal. Ash, I know you and Ed are going to analyze the European angle in greater depth, but first, I want to provide some context on the world of FX. The DXY had a massive rally in mid-March as coronavirus fears caused mayhem in the world of EM credit. But ever since then, it's been sliding downwards as liquidity has flowed into risk assets. The DXY measures the dollar's performance against a basket of currencies. And while that basket is dominated by the euro, the yen, pound sterling, as well as other currencies play a big role as well. The euro has been appreciating against the dollar, and there's been a lot of buzz about it in the press. But a lot of this is looking back rather than looking forward. In many ways, investors are actually more bullish on the dollar than they've been in years. If you look at the spread between forward and spot rates for the euro, there's actually been a compression, indicating that while the market is still pricing in a euro appreciation against the dollar, that appreciation is less than it was previously expected. The yen tells an interesting story as well. Like the euro, an appreciation against the dollar is priced in, and there are two factors at play here. One is the inordinate amount of swap lines that the Fed has extended to the Bank of Japan. The assistance that the BOJ has received from the Fed is way, way higher than that extended to any other central bank. It's not even close. The other is the recent weakness announced in Japanese exports, which fell by more than 20% for the third straight month, even though key markets began to reopen worldwide. And what's interesting is that exports to the US fell 46.6% year over year, compared to a 28.4% drop for Europe and only a 0.2% drop for China. This will probably weigh heavy on the yen, but a bearish signal for the U.S. economy could more than offset that. So to sum up, the headlines of dollar weakness are less visions for the future than they are snapshots of the past. The euro is priced to perfection, with lots of volatility baked into the cake, whereas the JPY trade is a little more murky. And with that, let's go back to Ash and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Ed. Looking good, Lewis. I'm not even going to try this time. How was your weekend? <laughs> it was good. It was very good. It was too hot, actually. Um, I went out for a ride um, uh, on uh, Saturday really early at like 6.30. And I was supposed to go yesterday, but when 6.30 came around, I just did, I, I didn't feel like doing it. And I wasn't going to go out for a ride at like 12 because the heat index was like 102 degrees. Yeah, it was sweltering in New York as well. So, Ed, what are you looking at today? Yeah, so I'm looking at jobless claims uh, because I think I sent you guys a bunch of stuff on jobless claims earlier today, and I have a thesis on that uh, that involves the statistical breakdown. Do you want me to go through how I'm looking at it? 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one and really very much to the point of what's happening today. Yeah, so the, here's how I'm thinking about it, that we had a lockdown and almost immediately after we had the lockdown in the United States, jobless claims went up. You know, uh, the first week, uh, March the 21st, we saw 2.9 million. Then we saw a remarkable 6 million in the next week, which was uh, March the 28th. And then we had the the massive 6.2 million on uh, the week ending uh, the 4th of April. But since then, uh, they've been trending down. And the last number that we saw uh, was uh, was lower than that. I'm talking about actual claims now, as opposed to the uh, the seasonally adjusted claims numbers that we've been seeing. Because in the seasonally adjusted numbers, the the number peaked out at 6.8 million. Now, the interesting bit is if you look at the numbers, uh, the actual numbers, what you'll see is is that they've been trending down since April the 4th of 2020 from that 6.2 million actual claims that I talked about. And then if you look at the four-week average, they've also been trending down every week since uh, the 18th of April or the tw- uh, the 25th, is it? Uh, the 18th of April, I believe it is. But the first time that you've seen any uptick ha- was last week. A lot of people didn't talk about it because the seasonally adjusted number was lower, but we saw an uptick of over 100,000 jobless claims. And so the question is, is is that a pretend of the future? And what does it mean? So I did a little statistical analysis. I said, what if, I, I did two scenarios. What if we saw claims because of the rollback go up over the future just by the same amount that they've gone up uh, the last week, but just for a few weeks, and then they come back down. Interestingly enough, just because of the seasonal adjustment factors coming up in the near future, if you had the jobless claims go up from uh, you know the 1.5 million that we've seen today to let's say 1.9 million over a few weeks and then come back down, they would the seasonally adjusted four-week average would peak out around 2.3 million uh, jobless claims sometime in the month of uh, of of September. Even if, let's say that jobless claims stay the same, even though we know that we're we're having a rollback of the the reopening, even if they stay the same you're guaranteed to get yourself up to 1.8 million on a seasonally adjusted basis. And that's purely on a statistical basis because of the seasonal adjustment factor. So the bottom line is, if I can roll it up, and you can ask me all the right questions about what this means, is is that we are going to see jobless claims rise by 500,000 over the next month uh, baseline. Yeah, so let's walk through this, Ed, because I think you have some interesting insights here that are really important. So basically, you start out with the unadjusted number, the NSA number, the not seasonally adjusted number, and then an adjustment factor is applied. And it's just a multiplier, or actually, I guess, technically, a divisor that gets applied to that number. Now, why is it in this particular circumstance that those numbers are not doing what they typically do, which is kind of neutrally adjusting for seasonal factors? This time is different, as the saying goes. Right. Yeah. I mean, so if you look back, say, at the beginning of the year and you look at the seasonally adjusted numbers, they were running around 200,000 seasonally adjusted claims. Now they're running at about 1.3 million. 
So that's a factor of six or seven times what we had before. So when you take what would be a normal seasonal adjustment, let's say you're trying to compare January to July to October, in order to make those numbers roughly comparable, you have to have a seasonal adjustment factor because you know there are different levels of layoffs at different points in the year just because of seasonality of how work gets done. If you do that, when the order of magnitude is six and seven times what you would have in a normal year, then you're going to get six and seven times the amount of adjustment that you would normally see. So the uh, the example that I would give is is that if you look at the numbers in June, uh, they bottomed the seasonal adjustment factor at 95 on June the 13th. Last week, uh, which was July the 11th, the, the seasonal adjustment factor was up to 115.7. And as you said, that's a divisor. That means that you're dividing that number, you're dividing the non-seasonally adjusted number by that number and then multiplying by 100. So the lower the number is, uh, the more you get uh, you know, an uptick in the seasonally adjusted number. So numbers have been coming down on just because of that. Uh, and also because the, the, season, the, the non-seasonally adjusted, the actual numbers have been coming down. So the numbers have been ticking down incredibly quickly since... Uh, the middle of June, just as the reopening was causing a spike in coronavirus cases. And now for the first time, that spike has led to the rollback of the reopening and therefore a, a uptick in the non-seasonally adjusted. And this is happening just as the number is going to reverse in the opposite direction. That is, is that the adjustment factor is going to go down and it's going to cause a massive spike in the seasonally adjusted numbers. Yeah. You know, I think of it in a simple way. It's just a function of the arithmetic. If you use a divisor or if you multiply by a reciprocal, if that's easier to think about, it's basically like looking at a compass heading. If you're off a few degrees and you're only walking 50 feet, it may not change your position that much in the end. But if you're walking several miles, it just continues to amplify the error every additional mile you extend it out. And the same is true here. What works relatively well during normal conditions, uh, during exceptional circumstances, doesn't because the quanta rolls up so quickly. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was making the comparison between 200,000 claims and 1.3 million, six or seven times the amount, if you have an adjustment factor over a period of two weeks, which we're going to have going from 115 to 84, that's a 30 percent differential that you're going to have seven times the amount happening just when I'm anticipating that claims are going to go up. So the increase in claims, if there is any, is going to be magnified six or seven times in terms of the numbers that we see. And people are going to be absolutely shocked at the numbers that we see, even if, uh, you know, claims stay the same. If they go up, it's going to be even more shocking. And I think that's going to have a massive impact on how we think about the economy going forward. Yeah, and it's a pretty good prediction, Ed, because it happened in one direction. It stands to reason that when that number flips, and you can look at the seasonality adjustment factor and just see that when it goes, uh, I guess it's below 100, that will happen. Yeah, exactly. So I think that this is going to add uh, to uh, the sense of alarm as we uh, head out of the summer months that uh, we'll just have to see what it means in terms of, you know, what kind of packages we get. I hear that the Republicans 
have talked to Donald Trump about getting some sort of stimulus bill together that has a payroll tax cut involved with it. There's not a $600 PUA, uh, pandemic uh, unemployment assistance number attached to it, but may- maybe it'll be something like 200 or 400. Maybe that will get done and that will help in terms of uh, you know, mis- you know, bridging us over the gap. But my baseline is, is that we're going to see more, the higher numbers on this non-seasonally adjusted basis, much higher numbers on a seasonally adjusted basis. We're going to see increasing unemployment. And at the same time, we're going to see, you know, evictions and things of that nature. We're going to see a moratoria uh, stop in terms of mortgages and things of that nature. All of these things are going to be coming together just as people are coming back from their holiday slumber. Uh, and that's going to royal markets in the September and October timeframe. Yeah, and you've been very consistent about looking at that particular time window. That's right. Yeah. So I, I mean, the, one of the reasons that you always see some sort of market volatility at that time is because it's a perfect time for people to reassess. Uh, you got, you have your uh, your quarterly earnings that are coming out. People are coming back hardcore for the first time after the holiday season, you know, schools in session, et cetera. We're in a different time frame. So all of those things are going to be the case now, except they're going to be adjusted by the pandemic in terms of schools. It's going to take on a whole totally different meaning. It's going to be uh, adjusted in terms of, you know, what the market is looking like, uh, especially given, you know, how bubblicious the market has been, including today with the NASDAQ at an, at an all-time high. So I think that there's going to be a phase shift, if you will, again, around that time frame, especially because we're going to need to have more clarity from people in terms of earnings uh, going forward. Ed, talking of phase shifts or potential phase shifts, what do you make of the political wrangling in Europe? I think that uh, we're not going to get a monumental phase shift as yet, but it is a minor phase shift in terms of I think that they're going to get a deal done. They've gone from the wrangling over the deal to probably getting the deal across the line. The last thing that I saw said that they're going to have some sort of uh, debt that they uh, owe in terms of the package at at the EU level. And there's also going to be some sort of grants in terms of money in order to tie people over somewhere in the order of 750 million euros. But uh, importantly, in terms of a rebate, in terms of the money that they're putting in, all of the frugal four, that's, you know, the Netherlands, Austria, that's Sweden, Denmark, they've gotten money back, uh, whereas Germany did not. Germany's still paying the same amount in, in excess compared to other countries. So, the squeaky wheel um, uh, uh, gets the attention. And that's basically what's happened with the frugal four. But this framework isn't something that's going to last for long, because at the end of the day, a country like Italy, which had 140% debt to GDP at the beginning of the uh, crisis, uh, they're probably going to go up to 160, 180. Uh, What do you do when the deficit hurdle is 60% debt to GDP in the the, uh, Eurozone? What do you do in 2021, 2022 to get Italy there, especially when Italy has been strangled for growth for decades now? I I don't see how any of this is workable over the the longer term. I think that without a doubt, Italy will have a debt crisis down the road. They're just kicking the can down the road. 
And, uh, you know, the dynamics there are very negative for growth for Europe. So when you compare Europe to the United States, it's hard to say which one is worse in terms of the macro uh, conditions. But going back to the September, October time frame, I, I think we'll find out. Yeah, it's a good question. And it is a long road. Uh, European Commission data show a 3.6% drop in GDP for Q1 2020 and an estimate on top of that of an additional 13.6% drop in Q2 GDP for 2020. Yeah. And uh, who knows if we're going to get back to square one or to growth in Q3. And by the way, in terms of the numbers that I was saying, I'm not sure if I said millions or billions, but you know, large numbers add up. We're talking about billions of dollars that uh, they're dispersing. And uh, you know, even with billions of dollars being dispersed, I think that they're going to need more uh, in places like Italy in order to, to spur the economy on. They're really in, in a hard place right now. Yeah, and precisely as you said, Ed, uh, definitely a laggard coming into the crisis. Yes, and I think a lot of their uh, lagging has to do with uh, you know very poor domestic demand uh, that is aided and abetted by uh, you know a, a fiscal uh, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it austere, but a fiscal break in order to you know get those deficits down in order to be able to make the debt hurdles over time. So there's there's just really, you know, they're being asphyxiated, their economy, and it's very, it's very difficult. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. You know, a slight phase shift of my own here, Ed. We're talking about all of the money uh, adding up for these global aid packages. One thing that caught my eye today was a new note out from Ed Morse at Citigroup calling for gold to take out the 2011 high of 1921 over the next six to nine months and a 30% chance of gold breaking 2000 in the next three to five months. Yeah, that seems uh, reasonable to me. It's, interestingly, though, you know, I think that when you look at the DXY, which is what uh, Jack was talking about earlier today, a lot of that is the euro uh, going up. You know, if the dollar is depreciating and, uh, and, you know, the Fed's printing money, then the combination there is very positive for gold. And that's, that's a place where gold versus the dollar should do relatively well. Unless obviously all that reverses and we have some sort of uh, um, liquidity crisis, in which case people will want their dollars. But to the degree that the, it holds that we have, uh, you know, the U.S. underperforming and the U.S. dollar underperforming as a result, that should be very good for gold. Yeah, I should add current gold price as of filming 1817 spot gold up 19 percent on the year. So that's not really that far away for us. I mean, to get to uh, uh, the highs of 2011 or even to 2000 or 3000, as we heard uh, from our interviewee today in the interview, it doesn't seem that far for the first two bogeys. The third bogey might be a little bit further, but a lot of people are talking $5,000 uh, an ounce for gold. So, you know, there's, there's a long way to run potentially for gold for, from here. 
Yeah, and I should point out that Morse in his report cites all the usual suspects, loose monetary policy, low yields, flight to safety from inflows. And, you know, speaking of low yields, let's remember that when we're thinking about gold and we talk about inflation being a hedge, more than just inflation, a hedge against inflation, it's a hedge against financial repression. It's a hedge against negative real interest rates. I mean, if n real interest rates are negative, that is, inflation is higher than the interest that you're getting paid, there's no money lost for you holding gold. You know, relatively speaking, holding an asset that doesn't uh, pay you any money isn't, isn't, isn't hurting you. In fact, it's hurting you to hold an asset that's giving you a return that's negative in, in real terms. So that makes gold, relatively speaking, more attractive. Yeah, you're not even getting 15 bips on the two-year right now. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at, that, at that rate, you might as well uh, move more into a store of, of wealth like gold and like other precious uh, metals. And I think that's why a lot of people have been talking about gold because of negative real interest rates. Yeah, more uh, broadly positive on the precious metals complex. Uh, also sees silver at 25, potentially 30 uh, by the end of the year. Silver spot trading just shy of 20 bucks at 1990 as of filming time. Yeah, interesting call with regard to silver because obviously that's higher on a percentage basis from where it is now relative to gold. On some level, you have to say since silver is an industrial commodity, maybe what's uh, going on there is, is he thinks that, you know, uh, the reflation will continue to, to uh, help the economy in some capacity, and therefore the economy will go up, and therefore the industrial use of silver will make it more bid. I don't have a view on that, but Generally speaking, I think uh, I'm somewhat cautious on the concept that we're going to have any sort of reflation that continues over the longer term. I think we have to take a wait and see approach on what sort of economic impact we have in the U.S. and in Europe. Yeah, I should say something else that caught my eye on a related note is that PayPal has just picked Paxos to offer cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin and Ethereum, to its users. Now, PayPal has over 300 million users. So it's a substantial number of people who are going to be able to purchase cryptocurrency directly through their PayPal account. So which cryptocurrencies are they uh, using and why did they choose those two? I'm not sure. I just I just skimmed the article. Uh, but to me, it was more of the premise of how many people were going to be coming online with this. I don't know what the exact mechanics are. I'm not really sure it matters that much. I, sh I suspect that they will expand their menu of cryptocurrencies as they roll out. But Bitcoin and Ethereum make up a pretty percent, substantial percentage of the market. If you look at the total outstanding network value or market cap, it's something like 75% is Bitcoin and Ethereum. So those two really do make a lot of difference. You know, it's interesting that they picked Paxos. Uh, Chad Cascarilla, of course, is a longtime friend of Real Vision. He's been on the platform many times. If you're a Real Vision subscriber, I actually interviewed him for the cryptocurrency gathering a few weeks ago. I I've been interested in Paxos for a long time because I think it's uh, one of the companies that does the best job of entering the regulated crypto space. They've done a great deal uh, in terms of auditing in terms of putting structures together that look like grown-up industrial scale, um, um, you know, institutional grade financial solutions. So it wasn't terribly surprising to me to see that PayPal made this choice. But for me, the most important headline here, less about the mechanics of how they're going to do phase one, less about 
which coins are going to be offered, and more about the fact that 300 million users are going to get basically click and drag access to cryptocurrency who did not have it before. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great thing. Uh, if uh, if you really want, I mean, you don't have to have, therefore, if you're a merchant, you don't actually have to offer, uh, you know, the ability to pay in uh in Bitcoin, you just need to offer the ability to pay using PayPal, and therefore you can actually, through the back door, have Bitcoin uh, as an offering. Just, I think it's a great deal on on both sides. It, it should be a win-win situation. It'll be interesting to see how this comes to to uh, to form, whether it has any uplift on uh, the crypto space. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting one. Philosophically, I've always believed that it's much more uh, use cases, store of value right now rather than medium of exchange. We all know the story about the guy who bought uh, the pizza for God knows how many tens of thousands of dollars at the current spot on Bitcoin. I think you could do a backdoor payment mechanism through Bitcoin effectively if Paxos slash PayPal flipped it in real time. The currency hedge risk would be zero if you could convert it on the fly. Or, uh, you know, just thinking about it from a store of value perspective, you are the merchant, right? You're a small merchant and you're using PayPal in some capacity and uh, you just store it in, in uh, rather than getting uh, money and then and keep and put it into your bank account, you put it into your uh, your Bitcoin account and uh, and you, you, you just store it there. Yeah, if, if uh, you're selling things on Etsy as your side job, you can just flip in all the, uh, you know, when you sell your figurines, you can just flip in all that money into Bitcoin and store it there. <laughs> Flipping away from Etsy figurines and back to the hard news side, I'm not sure if you saw this article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, economic recovery is underway, but fighting flare-ups is key. You know, it's a great compendium overview of what's happening right now. And I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, sometimes in the news business, especially the financial news business, we get obsessed with novelty. We always want the next new story. We want the story that gives us a new insight or a different angle. But the reality here is what this story showed was a, a very detailed interview with a number of CEOs who were talking about just the big picture overview of what's been happening and continuing to grind on. And effectively, you know, look, it's all driven somewhere about halfway through the article, they hit the data points that I think are the driver of all this, right? 77,000 new COVID cases last Thursday, new all-time high, total of 3.7 million US COVID cases after only a week ago, 3 million. So a substantial, substantial jump. And I know that people will say that some of this is an unmasking effect caused by additional testing, but the positivity rates are rising and unfortunately, the death counts are rising too. So this really does look like organic growth of the virus itself. And effectively, what a broad swath of CEOs talked about was weakening demand, steepening losses, additional layoffs, and pulling back supply. So when they were talking about uh, weakening demand, that's the, the I think that's where the rubber hits the road for me. It was interesting because I was looking at the latest from Gavin Davies, who's a columnist in the Financial Times, and he was saying that data that he's seen suggests that this time around in the non-lockdown phase, that there's been minimal disruption to the uh, buying power, consumers. Somehow consumers are keeping their consumption levels relatively stable relative to uh, before we had the uptick in coronavirus cases. I don't know what that means. Maybe we've become inured to the whole concept that uh, more people are dying 
or maybe it's that we have now developed uh, new shopping habits where we now know how to get the things that we want online in this new coronavirus world. But the poten- the interesting bit for me is that potentially it says that maybe that's the break that we have between the uh, the medical economy and the real economy, that there's no flow through from what happens in coronavirus to you know the effect on consumption unless we we hit some sort of magic level where it's just like bang uh you know that's just too much and and then everything rolls off from there i just think that it's interesting that we haven't seen as much of a of a roll down in in terms of consumption this time around as yet yeah june consumer sales increased 7.5% over prior month i was inspired actually i think by your credit write down analysis and the overview that you gave here uh, of the way that we're potentially misinterpreting or misconstruing some of the jobless data numbers. I'm wondering, you know, when things get this out of whack, how valid are these numbers? So we're looking at uh, an increase of 7.5% on a month over month basis. Now, if you look at the year over year basis, it's up modestly higher from June of 2019. But again, it's up on a declining base. So we really have to be careful about these numbers. Things that work with 1% and 2% changes may not necessarily hold true when the swings are, when markets are having wild mood swings the way they are right now, and when the economic data is having wild mood swings. Yeah, I, I think the whole uh, panoply, the whole panoply of, of different uh, data sets that we're getting are all sort of contaminated, if you will, no pun intended, by the virus. Uh, and so it makes it very difficult for us to talk about it in a very efficacious way, right. I, which is, you know, that's why I was, I was, I'm looking at non-seasonally adjusted data for jobless claims, because to me, that strips away at least some of the varnish. So, you know, going back to what you were saying about what these CEOs were saying to, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, it's factual that a hundred thousand more people uh, filed claims uh, in in the last week than the week before. That that's the reality. That that's the unvarnished number. And then the question is, is that a trend? Because this is the first time that we've seen it since April the fourth. So that's a long time to go uh, with declining numbers, and then suddenly to get an uptick. I believe. Uh, just as these CEOs were saying to the Wall Street Journal, that you will see an uptick, uh, not just uh, for that one week, but over several weeks. And given the way the statistics work, it's going to look even worse than it actually is. Uh, and so that in, in and of itself could have a negative implication. It, I mean, it, it could cause consumers to uh, to step back and have a chill. So I, I, I think that these next weeks are going to be very important. Uh, yeah. and we'll just have to see how we come out on the other side. For me, normalization is probably in the September time frame, you know, mid-September. That's when people will start to feel like, okay, we've got a handle on this. The data, uh, we're not, we now understand what the data are saying. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say normalization, you don't mean normalization of the economy. You mean normalization of the data. We'll then know how bad a situation we've got ourselves in. Exactly. Yeah, that's when we'll we'll have a much better sense of this is this is trending. This is the new trend. This this is not, you know, post lockdown. This is not because of uh, you know, some other exogenous factor. This is where we are uh 
going forward. Yeah. You know, I know we're running out of time, Ed, but to pick up on two things that you said that I completely agree with, you know, number one, it matters to me what CEOs think because they're looking through all of this data and trying to figure out how it impacts their business. And they obviously understand their businesses far better than we do. Uh, so if they're thinking about closing stores, laying off routes, you know, laying off people, these are decisions that they've made based on a wide sampling of all the data. And the second point that you made, I think that's so crucial is the temp, the processional effects that come out of this, the impact to animal spirits. You have a decrease in supply, a follow-on with a decrease in demand, decrease in demand, follow-on, decrease in supply. This is how you get into vicious cycles when those things occur. Right. And you know, and let me let me play the devil's advocate positive side. Uh, but with a bit of a, a negative twist in the sense that let's just say what you just said is only true for the brick and mortar economy, that what we're now seeing is a, is a shift. As I was saying, uh, you know, Gavin Davies was saying that actually the aggregate numbers aren't really that much down, that maybe, you know, now we've, we've figured out that we've shifted from, from A to B, you know, we've shifted from, uh, for lack of uh, a better thing, uh, target to Amazon. And so now the, the JC Pennies, the targets of the world, they're going to have to deal with that by laying people off. So it's not a costless uh, um, exercise. It may be that the, the aggregate shift over the short to medium term is, uh, is not that great. But just because you have that, that level of friction, that's going to cause uh, problems for the economy. And uh, if those problems are large enough, if the layoffs are large enough, then it will be a shock to the economy as well. Yeah. And as we move toward more efficient uh, digital mechanisms for supply chains, it reminds me of the old joke. The good news is there are efficiencies. The bad news is the efficiency is you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think we'll have to leave it on that. Yes, that is very much the case. Ed, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.